Good morning. Um, once again, Ted Vandenberg, and uh, my honor and privilege to be here today to be able to speak to you and give you God's word. And I'm grateful that uh, I'm able to give the second part of the series, three-part series, if I didn't mention it last week. Uh, last week was God the Father. This week is God the Son. And next week, Lord willing, will be God the Holy Spirit. And today's sermon is titled, God the Son, Behold the Beauty of the Lord. And my hope and prayer for this sermon is that uh, we'll be able to illuminate um, Christ's deity and how beautiful he is and his magnificent, awesome power and glory and dominion and really what he means to us as Savior and Lord, God the Son. So without further ado, if you would pray with me and we'll start the sermon. Heavenly Father, we just again invite you to be here with us, both here in the sanctuary and at homes or wherever people are watching and um, fellowshipping in the spirit, um, that you would illuminate the scriptures, that you would help us to articulate the truth and to really show your glory and your honor and your power, how beautiful you are and how grateful we are, Lord, that you have called us into a relationship with you. Father, we just ask that um, by the power, again, of your spirit, that we would leave this message today knowing you better, loving you deeper, and wanting to serve you all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to be jumping around through some scriptures. You're welcome to do that. We're going to start uh, in Psalms 27.4. And uh, again, this is, um, the sermon really is about God the Son. In Psalms 27.4 it says, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek is that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Two. Behold the beauty of the Lord, and to meditate in his temple. And for various reasons, theologians have sometimes hesitated to describe Christ Jesus as beautiful. Wayne um, Gurdum defines Christ's beauty as this, quote, The attributes of God whereby the sum of all the desirable qualities, that is the attribute of God, whereby he is the sum of all the desirable qualities. That is, beauty is used as a synonym for goodness and splendor or glory or majesty. And we can find God, the Son's beauty, in many places, and in many ways. But for me, and today, it's about when I look up into the night sky, I see his majesty. I see his glory. Psalms 19 verse 1 says this, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. You know, there is awe and wonder in every person's heart, I would imagine, when we consider the universe. The cosmos tells of his magnificence. It declares his glory. On December 24th, 1968, the Apollo 8 spacecraft rounded the moon with its crew of three men. 
You know, they, they traveled above and the backside of the moon. Their commander at the time was Frank Borman. And as they traveled along, it's recorded that he described the lunar surface as being a vast, lonely, forbidding expanse of nothing. And then something happened. They rounded the moon. And this something was something that for the first time in man's history, human eyes, human eyes saw an earth rise. This beautiful blue planet that we live on, this privileged world of all worlds in God's creation, it was rising up. Rising up from beyond the moon. Commander Borman's reaction is recorded. It's one of, I would say, astonishment. Because as he looked upon the work of God the Son's handiwork, his first words were, Oh my God. Oh my God. Followed by, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the work of God the Son, Jesus Christ, our Messiah. And it's stunning and it's jaw-dropping. can take your breath away. And you consider the enormity of what he has brought into existence. When you really consider it, you're driven to worship him, knowing that apart from him, nothing can come into existence. And we see this in the, the Gospel of John, in the first chapter. We see the beauty of his deity. Because it says in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. This is given even more flesh, if you will, to it in Colossians Chapter 1, 15 through 17, he says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And I I want to put some perspective on this, some perspective on the glory and the beauty of God the Son, Christ Jesus. And I want to do that by looking at the heavens, the cosmos, the universe. It's really easy for us, maybe it's because of gravity, we walk around looking at our feet. So I want us to look up for a moment. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Now, there was a a message preached by a man, a pastor by the name of Louis Giglio, that really impacted me years ago. And I want to give you part of that message so you can see, so we we can expound on the, and really understand and relate to how great the Son of God is. What he's done. Isaiah 42.5 says, Thus says the Lord, thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out. The glory and beauty of 
God the Son, who stretched out space. What does that mean? Distance. Let's start with what is known as the Darling of Galaxies. That's the Whirlpool Galaxy. They call it the Darling of Galaxies because it sits in such a way from the vantage of planet Earth, it sits flat in the sky, and we can see it in its perfection as a whirlpool as it describes it. And the photos of it, if you see it, are spectacular. Well, it says here that God the Son stretched out space. The Whirlpool Galaxy is 31 million light years away. And that's so easy to say and repeat, 31 million light years away. But do we understand what that means? I want you to see the greatness of Christ Jesus, God the Son. So let's try to conceive that, the vastness of his created universe. So what's a light year? Well, a light year is traveling at the speed of light. That's 186,000 miles per second for a full year. If you travel 186,000 miles per second for a full year, that's a light year. And what's that perspective? Light speed? Well, if you were to go around the Earth in light speed, by the time I said 1,001, you would have gone around the Earth seven and a half times. 1,001, 1,002, you have traveled around this globe, Earth, 15 times in two seconds. That's how fast light speed is. A light year traveling 186,000 miles per second for a year, you would have traveled 5.88 trillion miles. All right, so let's do the math. One year, 5.88 trillion miles times 31 million years. That's a long time. That's a lot of miles. What's the chances? What's the chances of us getting into our spacecraft traveling at light speed, and getting to the Whirlpool galaxy. It would take 31 million years to get there. So he who created the heavens and stretched them out, he's glorious. He's awesome. He's powerful. He's beautiful. Let's talk about the number of stars. Do you know what galaxy that our little blue planet hangs in right now? It's the Milky Way. And they say it's an insignificant galaxy, about 100 billion stars. Our sun is just one of a billion. And we're not even counting all the planets in the galaxy. 100 billion stars, each with its own planets, right? Its own solar system. The Whirlpool Galaxy has 300 billion stars. Now, that's just two galaxies, estimated by scientists, of having approximately four billion stars. The question is, is how many galaxies are in the universe? Well, there was a time when they said there were 100 billion galaxies in the universe. Each universe having billions of stars. And who knows how many planets? But wait. <laughs> scientists completed a ultra-deep space scan with the Hubble spacecraft years ago. Not that many years ago. 
And at that time, they said, we can safely say there are 176 billion galaxies in the universe. But there's more. In 2018, they launched this new James Webb Space Telescope that saw further into deep space than ever before. And the scientists say now, there could be a trillion galaxies in the observable universe. That's mind-boggling. Those are numbers I can't conceive of. And in Psalm 147, it says, He counts the number of the stars, and he gives them names, names to all of them. See, our Lord is mighty. He's praiseworthy. Isaiah 40, 26 says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. God the Son is beautiful. He's glorious. He's powerful. Let's talk about size. How big or important is this planet of ours? Our little favored world where God is doing his work. <laughs> Let's look. Our star, the sun, is one million times bigger than Earth. In other words, you could fit 960,000 Earths inside the sun. Psalms 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Our little planet is little indeed. Because I want to give you one more example. It's an example of a star in the observable universe called Canis Majoris. It is, as scientists say, ginormous. It's a ginormous star. And now we're going to be talking about big numbers, really big numbers. Our Lord, our Savior, is mightier and more awesome than I ever imagined. Just try to conceive or imagine the enormity of his creative power with these numbers. So we're just going to go through them real quick. We all can imagine a million, right? One million. One billion? One billion is a thousand million. One trillion, one thousand billion. And here may be a new one for you. One quadrillion. One quadrillion is a thousand trillion. These are really big numbers. So let's get some perspective on them. We'll use seconds. If I said to you, one million seconds ago, how long ago was that? Well, one million seconds ago was 12 days ago. And quite honestly, I don't think I can remember what I was doing 12 days ago. But there's this exponential growth between 1 million and 1 billion. Because 1 billion seconds ago, well, it was 31 years ago, 1989. Do you remember what happened in 1989? Loma Prieta earthquake, the Exxon Valdez oil spill, George H.W. Bush becomes president. But if you thought that exponential growth was pretty fantastic, 
The difference between one billion and one trillion is almost unbelievable. One trillion seconds ago is 29,700 years before Christ. And if that wasn't enough, one quadrillion seconds ago, 30,800,000 years. We're talking some really big numbers that grow exponentially. So let's talk about Canis Majoris. It is so big, it is so big that you could fit seven quadrillion Earths inside of it. To compare this star, that's Canis Majoris, to the Earth, you could use a golf ball. Right? Just to give you a visual. If Earth was the size of a golf ball, we could set that golf ball on the sidewalk at the base of the Empire State Building. Now, you could step back from your golf ball and take a look right up the walls of the Empire State Building and see the Empire State Building over the golf ball representing Earth. And guess what? The Empire State Building is still too small to compare to Canis Majoris. To get a true visual of this, you'd have to take your golf ball, Earth, to the base of Mount Everest. You'd have to set your ball down at the base of Mount Everest, step back and look up at Mount Everest, towering over your golf ball six miles above it. You can fit seven quadrillion Earths inside of this star, Canis Majoris. <laughs> you, you wouldn't even notice the earth as a pen mark on the surface of the star. And the God, the Son, our Savior, Jesus, he is massive. He is great. He is formidable. He's beautiful. How small. In light of that, how small, how insignificant how infinitely unnoticeable Earth is. They say the third rock from the sun. It's lost in the greatness of the universe. Why, why does he even consider this speck of cosmic dust? Who are we that he would love us so? You think of the vastness of the universe, of all the galaxies. You think of our Milky Way that we sit in. Our sun, this planet. Think about the northern hemisphere, our nation, California, Santa Clara County, this city. Think about this church. Think about the home, which you're it, which you're in. He considers you. He knows you. He cares for you. Psalms 8. 3 through 4 says, when I consider your heavens, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? We have God the Son, the King of the universe. He is the King of the universe whose creation is so vast and magnificent, we can't fathom the half of it. He calls us into a relationship with him. What is man? What is man that you would even think of him? 
And what is the response of mankind? What is the response of our magnificent creator? Well, the short answer is we've all turned astray. We've all rebelled. Psalms 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Romans 3. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as is written. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And if you think that Paul is talking about them out there, you're right. But he's talking about me. He's talking about you. We have responded to the mighty power of the universe in disobedience. Romans 8, 7 tells us, Because the mind of the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I want you to see the mind of the flesh. Quote, the mind of the flesh is the mind of a man or a woman apart from the indwelling of the Spirit of God. Because you you are not in the flesh, as Romans 8, 9 says. You are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit if the Spirit of God really dwells in you. So my point is this. Natural man has a mindset that does not and cannot submit to God Jeremiah 17 makes it really clear. 17.9 says the heart, the heart is more de- deceitful than all else. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Isaiah 53.6 says all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Like I know, we've all broken his commandments. We see how awesome and great and beautiful and powerful he is when we look up into the heavens. He's given us the Ten Commandments. He said, there will be no gods before me. I look at myself through the lens of Matthew chapter 6, 24. It says, no one can... Serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. He says, 
You're not to make an idol and bow down and worship it. I know people who fashion their own designer God. I've, I've got acquaintances and friends and even family. One who told me this, he said, look, I love the love portion of, of Christianity, but there's other things I reject. And there are tenets of Buddhism that I love. And this person said, I consider myself a Christian Buddhist. He's fashioning his own God. There's a book by Michael Bunker. The book is called Modern Religious Idols. He says, quote, Modern day idolaters assume that God is just like them and would do the same things as they would do in the same situations. He goes on to talk about in his book, he says, about difficult uh, discussions. He says, pick a hard subject or cut that cut against today's culture like everlasting damnation, abortion. And the response sounds like this. Well, that doesn't sound like my God. Or my God wouldn't do that. I don't think of it that way. Or I don't think God would do that. It doesn't mean that to me. Or how about, I just do my best and know that God loves me and will show me mercy. Or how about anyone can make the Bible say anything they want. (laughs) Well, we'll all find out when we get to heaven. Or this response, I don't think God cares about, and then you fill in the blank, what God God does not care about. Here's one. That's just what you believe. We can agree to disagree. Or, I couldn't worship a God who would do that, say that, or command that. I know God loves me no matter what, and that's all I care about. Or lastly, just be sincere. Be sincere in what you believe, and God will accept it. See, mankind wants to mold and shape God into his own image. But the Lord, God the Son, has said he is shaping us into his own image. 2 Corinthians 3.18 we read, So all of us who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. God the Son calls us to be like Him. Yet disobedience is all around us. You know, just to go through the rest of the Ten Commandments, He has said, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Don't lie. Do not covet. Colossians we read, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil, your evil desire and greed, which amount to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come, will come upon the sons of disobedience. I think it's important that we see God the Son as pure 
and holy and righteous, righteous and blameless. God the Son is beautiful. He's beautiful in his love for us. In Romans 5, it says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us that in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. <laughs> Do you see God the Son? Christ Jesus, glorious and magnificently beautiful, the king of the universe. He didn't wait for us to clean up our act. He didn't wait for us to perform, to prove our worthiness. And we see this picture, and you see it in Christian bookstores and online. It's a beautiful picture of the lion and the lab, lamb. And I have this picture of the lion laying with the lamb in my mind, and you probably do as well. The picture was given to us so we can see the beauty of our Savior, God the Son. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9, we see that it says that when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. He is ferocious. He is powerful. He is a lion. We, the Lord gives us these pictures so we can understand, we can have a, a visual of it. Jesus is the lion, and a lion, an animal who makes prey out of others, who is strong and wild and majestic and dangerous. The lion fears nothing, is ferocious. He is the king of the beasts. But we need to see the other side of our Lord. In Revelation 5, 1 through 10, he says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? No one, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw. I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb, a lamb standing as if slain. Verse 7 goes on and says, And he, he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe 
and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This is God, the Son, who takes away our sins, the sins of the world. He's mighty, majestic king, but he's a meek and tender lamb. How could the power of the universe, how could he, this ferocious lion, the creator with all power and majesty, for us become the meek the meek lamb that was slain. He's beautiful and complex. The almighty king left his splendor. He laid aside his power and his majesty to be led as a lamb, a lamb to the slaughter. Mark 14 tells us this. Then some of them began to spit on him. They blindfolded him. They beat him with their fist. Prophesy to us, they jeered. And the guards slapped him as they took him away. Here is the ultimate power of the universe. The almighty living God. He has no rival. He has no equal. Fearsome. (laughs) Yet he humbled himself. For you and for me. Matthew tells us that Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who you call Christ? And they said, Crucify him. And he said, Why? Why, what evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Do you see? Do you see this magnificent king? He allowed them to lead him to the cross to pay for our disobedience. They scourged him. Took a whip, a cat nine, with bone, metal, glass in it. They tore his flesh. It says they gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand. They knelt down before him mocked him, saying, Hail the king of the Jews. They spat on him. They took the reed and began to beat him on the head. They led him away to crucify him. They hung him on a cross. And I see him. I see him in my mind. I see him on that tree. And I say, that's my king. That's my king who died for me. He became the curse. Galatians 3.13 tells us Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having 
become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Scripture tells us, bearing the full measure of the curse, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatnei. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? (laughs) He didn't just feel forsaken, he was forsaken for us. 2 Corinthians tells us, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The one who was pure was pure no more because he took my sin. He took your sin. And that's my king. That's your king. The creator of the universe. The one who stretched out space, who made stars so big we can't even conceive He's exalted, he's glorious, he's wonderful. Jesus, Jesus' glorious beauty is in the saving of sinners. Ephesians 2 tells us, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2 tells us, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Hmm. We should be so grateful. We should be so grateful to see Jesus so beautiful and feel so special because on this little blue planet that amounts to nothing more than a speck of cosmic dust in an obscure corner of the universe, he knows you. He's called you. He loves you. He did the work to save you. I want to end on a description of God the Son as the beautiful king. It's a poem by S.M. Lockridge. It's called, That's My King. Do you know him? And you could YouTube it and look at it. He does his own poem much better than I can. But it, it goes like this. My king was born a king. The Bible says he's a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews. That's an ethnic king. He's the king of Israel. That's a national king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. Well... I wonder if you know him. Do you know him? Don't try to mislead me. Do you know my king? 
David said, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. My king is the only one of whom there are no means of measure that can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of the shore of his supplies. No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. He's endearingly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's infinitely graceful. He's empirically powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's honest. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He's the grandest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in the higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of historic theology. He's the carnal necessity of spiritual religion. That's my king. He's the miracle of the age. He's the best of everything good that you could choose to call him. He's the only one able to supply our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tired. He sympathizes and he saves. He's the almighty God who guides and keeps all his people. He heals the sick. He cleanses the leopards. He forgives sinners. He discharged debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. That's my king. Do you know him? Well, my king is a king of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the governments. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. That's my king. His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. That's my king. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm sorry. I'm coming to tell you this. The heavens of heavens cannot contain him, let alone some man explain him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off your hands. You can't outlive him. You can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him. But they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. The grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. 
He's always. He always has been and he always will be. I'm talking about the fact that he had no predecessor. He'll have no successor. There's nobody before him. There'll be nobody after him. You can't impeach him. And he's not going to resign. That's my king. That's my king. How beautiful is our king? God the Son. Do you know him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open your word, to search it and see how good God the Son is, the King of kings, our Lord, our Savior, how magnificent he is, how beautiful, how awesome, how powerful, how mighty, how meek, how lovely, how he loves us. Heavenly Father, we ask you that we would leave this sermon today knowing you more, loving you deeper, and desiring to serve you with our hearts and minds and souls and strength. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. In the Greco-Roman world, Religious societies would often host dinners to honor other gods. They would call these tables the table of the Lord, fill in the blank of some Roman or Greek god, signifying that that god was the host of the table. When we as Christians refer to communion as the Lord's table, we're signifying that Jesus is the host. We recognize first and foremost that the table is about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who established it. It is for him, about him. And we come here to honor him, to remember him, and to commune with him. Now, as Christians, as believers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're welcome to this table. But the Bible does ask us to examine our hearts before we do that, to test our motives. So I would like to take a moment with you and and myself here, and let's just take take a little inventory of our hearts before we meet together. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup. Father, thank you that you have this table that we can come and meet you week after week. Father, thank you for the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on our behalf that we could have this covenant with you forever. 
thank you, Father, in all the things. In Jesus' name, amen. He became sin who 